The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who by the leading of a star didst manifest thy only begotten Son to the peoples of the earth, lead us who know thee now by faith to thy presence, where we may behold thy glory face to face. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. It has been several weeks since we gathered last, and as most of you know, we are in an ongoing study of the Gospel of John, but we're going to take a break from that today, and we are going to take a look instead at Matthew chapter 2, because as some of you may know, particularly those of you who went to the 815 service today, we are commemorating the Feast of the Epiphany, which was actually yesterday, January the 6th. Today in the church calendar is the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord. Uh, But because Epiphany is one of the major feast days, right up there in significance with Christmas, Easter, Holy Week, all of those events, um, it is an event that we felt we could not let pass by simply because it landed on a Saturday. So we have decided to transfer it today. So we are celebrating the Feast of the Epiphany today. It's one of those things that people have, um, I would say, a working knowledge of, But when it comes to the details, there may be some things that they really uh, didn't recognize were not true, things that they believed, perhaps, that they didn't recognize were true. And so we're going to take a look at um, the story of the coming of the Magi. The word epiphany means a manifestation or an appearing. In this particular instance, it's the appearing of Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, to the Gentile people and to these Noble visitors who came from a far land. So that's what we're going to take a look at. So if you have your Bibles open to John, you're going to want to flip instead to Matthew chapter 2. And some of what I said will also be covered in the sermon today. I'm not the preacher. Uh, Justin is the preacher, and he will cover some of this, but we're going to go into a little more detail this morning. So Matthew chapter 2, let's begin at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, 
and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. If you take a look at the opening chapter of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church that was deeply troubled, a church that gave him a great deal of anxiety. I always say that of all the, the churches that Paul established, and Paul regarded himself as the spiritual father and God to these churches, his problem child was the church in Corinth. Uh, he wrote at least two letters that we know of to address all the problems that were afflicting Corinth. And part of that was simply due to the fact that Corinth was a very cosmopolitan and commercial port and it had all sorts of mixtures of peoples and beliefs and so forth. And the pressure on the Christians to conform was tremendous. But in that opening chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul is reminding them of what they were and what they have become. And he writes these words in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that was so true. In those early days, most of those who followed Jesus, just think about the 12 disciples themselves, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all the rest, you'll notice that they did not come from noble backgrounds. They were very common folk, and that was generally the case. Jesus was wildly popular at certain points in his ministry, particularly when he was operating in the northern section of Israel in Galilee. We said that crowds sometimes numbering in excess of 5,000 people were following Jesus. And when he entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, there was pandemonium, people tearing the palm branches from the trees and strewing their garments before his donkey as he made his way into the city. Jesus was at times wildly popular. But when you read through the Gospels, one thing becomes clear. Most of the time, the people who were acclaiming Jesus, who were thrilled with the advent of Jesus, were the poor people. They were the common people. In the ancient world, there was really no middle class uh, we don't get what we would call a middle class until the industrial age. There were haves and there were have-nots, and it was pretty much the have-nots that were following Jesus. 
And yet Paul makes it clear that was part of God's plan. To take the things that are despised and rejected and hated in the world and bring them to prominence. Boy, the disciples are an example of that, aren't they? As I said, these men were uneducated, probably uncouth. They were rough-hewn fishermen, every single one of them, with a tax collector thrown in there for spice and that sort of thing. But these were not people of influence. They were not power. They were not the first families of Israel. And yet, look at the way that God used them. Those 12 men literally transformed the world. They turned it upside down, and they would go on to write great works, great epistles, gospels. God is pleased to take the small things of the world to do great things so that men might not boast, but the glory might go to God. That's what Paul is reminding us. And yet, while it is true that most of these people were not powerful, most of them were not wise by worldly standards, most of them were not of noble birth, we can't deny the fact that there were some who were. And that is true when it comes to the story of the Epiphany. Epiphany is the story of these visitors who came from the east in search of the one who was born the new king of the Jews. They were very distinguished individuals. In fact, that's what that word magi means. They are described as the magi here. Justin is going to point out that actually there is no indicator whatsoever in the scriptures or anywhere else that they were kings. Now, I'll tell you why people thought they were kings, particularly in the Middle Ages, but they are described in the New Testament as the magi. And that is a word, comes from the Greek magoi, and it means the influential ones. So these men were influential people. Uh, they are sometimes described as wise men. So while many wise did not follow Jesus, we know that some did seek him out. Not many were of noble birth, but there were some who were, and these were some of them. And they came and they sought out Jesus. They were so distinguished, in fact, that we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea were troubled by their appearance. So who were these noble visitors? Uh, every time there is, you know, Christmas rolls around, I'm sure now most people are now sending pictures of themselves at Christmas, you'll notice, on Christmas cards. Um, I have a little trouble with that. Um, uh, we do it too, but I don't like it. I mean, I'm thinking it's, it's his birthday and we're sending pictures of ourselves. What is wrong with that picture? Um, but it's family, that's right, I know, it's lovely. I still have a problem with it. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the days before people did that sort of thing, you would get a Christmas card, and the Christmas card normally was a picture of the birth of Christ, or a lot of Christmas cards had the picture of what? Three wise men on them, or three kings coming into the stable, bowing down and offering their gifts of gold frankincense, and myrrh. And that has been the tradition down through the ages, at least since the time of the Middle Ages. But actually, and Justin is going to point this out in his sermon, if you take a close look at the biblical text, and really the only thing that we know about these men is from the biblical text, if you look closely at the biblical text, one thing becomes clear, we don't know much about them at all. The tradition is that there were three of them, because there were three gifts that were offered, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And in the Middle Ages, not only did they say that there were three, but again, they applied titles to them. They made them kings. Part of that was due to the fact that they brought very valuable gifts. And in that ancient world, as I said, there were haves and there were have-nots. If these men were bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we're going to see that all of those were very precious commodities in the ancient world. That if they were bringing them, they must have been powerful, influential people, perhaps kings. Because only kings would have access to that sort of thing was the thought. Not only that, but in the Middle Ages, we actually applied names to them. They were called Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Uh, but the reality is no names are given to these men anywhere in Scripture. So this is all part of tradition, and it's a tradition that, as I said, developed really in the Middle Ages, in an age when people were, at least the common people, for the most part, ignorant. Uh, they were uneducated. They were not capable of reading or even writing, and so these stories had to be passed on, and so they put names to these people to make the stories more concrete. But actually, we don't know who they were. We know very little about them. We don't know exactly how many of them came. Now, in church, in just a few minutes, 45 minutes or so, we are going to have a very dramatic singing of We Three Kings of Orient Are. And here I am disabusing you of the idea that, number one, they were kings, and number two, we don't even know how many of them came. The Scripture doesn't tell us how many there came. The only thing we know for certain is that there were more than two, or more than one, rather, because we're told they were wise men. But for all we know, there may have been only two of them, and they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There may have been more than three. Every time we see them depicted in artwork, they're coming and they're riding on camels. We don't know that they rode on camels. We don't know how they made their way to Jerusalem and ultimately to Bethlehem. There is just much that we do not know. We are filling in the blanks, you see, in order to make the story more meaningful to us. We really don't even know when they arrived. Take a look at how this text begins, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. And all we're told is that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they came. How long after Jesus was born? See, most of the depictions, and Justin points this out in the sermon, most of the depictions in artwork show the wise men there in the stable with the shepherds and with the Christ child and with Mary and Joseph. But actually, the text says that it was after Jesus was born that they appeared. Now, how long after? We don't know. Speculation ranges from up to two years to just a few days. Why two years? Because Herod would ultimately order the death of all the little children in Bethlehem under the age of two. And he was calculating from the time that the wise men saw the appearance of the star. So some have suggested that it may have been two years after the fact. One thing is very clear. We're told that they came into the house and opened their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In other words, Mary and Joseph by this point were not in the stable. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, the stable was temporary housing. Nobody said, hey, this is a nice place. Let's go ahead and set up a home here. Mary would have said, I'm having none of that. <laughs> 
So we don't know how many came. We don't know exactly when they came. My, I, my thought is that they probably came shortly after the birth. They traveled a great distance. We're told that the star appeared. It may have appeared months beforehand. It would have taken them a great deal of time to travel from where they were coming, if indeed I'm correct and where I think they were coming from. But we don't know exactly. So there are many things about this story that we don't know. Now, I'm not trying to just explode all of your ideas and all of these romantic notions that you've had since you were a child. I'm just challenging us to read the scriptures closely. So we don't know how many came. Were they kings? No, they were not kings. They were not kings because they are called magi, and the magi were not kings. So we're going to sing, we three kings of Orient are, but don't think of them as kings. <laughs> what kind of a star did they see? Down through the centuries, there's been all sorts of speculation. We know that stars are fixed in their orbits, or, uh, or planets actually orbit around the stars. We know that stars don't necessarily move. So what was this? Now, the earliest days of the church's history, the belief was that this was some sort of a comet. Um, Johannes Kepler, who is the father of modern astronomy, suggests to us that the star was actually a conjunction of two planets, Saturn and Jupiter, at a particular time of the year. But we're not told what this heavenly body was. We really don't know. Um, I would encourage you to listen again to Alan Runyon's uh, presentation that he made about a year ago, or maybe two years ago, on the star of Bethlehem, which I think is very helpful. He's done a deep dive into all of this, and I think you'll be blessed by listening to what he has to say. But the reality is that the Scripture doesn't tell us what kind of a star they saw. Furthermore, it doesn't even tell us if they followed it. We're told that it rose, and they went in search of it. Now, eventually, apparently, it moved from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But initially, we're not told if it was moving or if it was located over the land of Judea, and that's what led these wise men to them. So there are all sorts of things that we assume from the story, but if you read the text closely, and I'm always encouraging you to do so, to read the text closely to try and understand what it is actually saying. So who were these men? Well, there's much that we don't know about them. We don't know where they came from exactly, although there is some indicator that they probably came from Persia. They probably were Persians because this is where the Magi came from. And we're going to talk more about that term Magi in just a moment. But they probably came from Persia. Now, you may recall that following the death of King David the great king of Israel, his kingdom was passed on to his son Solomon. And under Solomon, the kingdom flourished. It was under Solomon that the great temple in Jerusalem was built. But upon the death of Solomon, the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, was divided. Between the northern kingdom, ten tribes, which became known as Israel, and two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, which became known as the kingdom of Judah. Now, those ten tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel, ultimately rebelled against God, and as a result, God sort of lifted his hand of blessing off of them, and they were punished by means of an invasion. The 
invasion of the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom and exported a great number of the people. Now the people in the south in the kingdom of Judah, those two tribes in the south that remained remain loyal to God, they continued to flourish and prosper for a number of years, but eventually they too turned against God and the result was that God lifted his hand of blessing from them. And as was the case so often in the ancient world, as is the case even today, if you take a look at what's happening in Ukraine, another nation comes in and conquers them. In this case, it was the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now in the ancient world, when you were conquered as a nation, uh, they didn't just simply come in and bring in their troops and occupy you. No, they wanted to export the people, deport them, get them out of that area so that they could not have any sort of critical mass. And not only would you deport them, you would take them oftentimes back to your own land where you could assimilate them into your culture. And so that is what happened. This is called the Babylonian exile. And the Jews were exported from that kingdom in the south and they were taken off to Babylonia under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they lived there for um, several decades until, as, as I said, is always the case, another kingdom comes in and conquers them. In this particular case, the Babylonians now are conquered by the Persians under Cyrus the Great. So they're in Judah in exile from about 597 to 587. And then what happens is the Persians come in and defeat the Babylonians in 539. BC. The Magi were the learned men of Babylon and Persia. That's who they were. That's why we know that they probably came from this part of the world. They were counselors to the kings. That word means influential ones. And they were really a combination of astronomers and astrologers. Now, we separate those two things today. We, we view astronomy as a legitimate science, and most of us, I'm hoping that all of us, view astrology as something that is rather suspect. The, the Gene Dixons of the world, those people who read signs and so forth in the, in the heavenly bodies. But it's important to understand that in the ancient world, there was no such separation. Um, the Magi were wise people. They were learned men. Incidentally, they were monotheistic in a world that was polytheistic. They were monotheistic. So they only believed in one God. It wasn't necessarily the God of the Hebrews, but they believed in one God. And they did study um, the heavenly bodies. They were interested in science in its primitive form. They were fascinated by this sort of thing. But they also believed that there were signs. Uh, there were um, things that would happen in the heavens that were a sign of what was to come. And so they studied these things with the intent of understanding not only the present and the past, but also understanding the future. So it was kind of a mixture, if you will, of a legitimate sign studying the, the solar system, but at the same time, it was a mixture of all of this other stuff. In fact, that word magi is the term from which we get our word magic and magician. So these were powerful men. We encounter them several times in the scriptures, not just here in Matthew chapter 2. And oftentimes when we encounter them, they are wicked. So, for example, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, 
the apostle Peter encounters a man by the name of Simon Magus, who sees this power that Peter has, that when Peter lays his hands on people, they receive the Holy Spirit. And they're able to speak in other tongues and they're able to do extraordinary things and miracles happen. And Simon, we're told, this man Simon came to Peter and he said, here's some money, give me this power that I too may lay my hands on people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The problem with Simon was that he didn't understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a power that can be harnessed. What he wanted to do was to get this power and use it for his own means. And Peter curses him. He said, depart from me, you're cursed. Well, this man's name was Simon Magus. Magus, magi, magician. So we encounter him. We encounter another one of these magi, and that is in Acts chapter 13. It's when Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, make their way down to the Isle of Cyprus, and they encounter a magician, a magi. His name is Elymas, or Bar-Jesus, and he opposes Paul and Barnabas, and Paul calls down a curse on him and says, you will be blind for a time. So these were the magicians, the, the magi. These were people who came from other lands, and they came as advisors to the kings to advise them. They were influential ones. So these are who the magi are. Most of them are evil. However, there are some who are good. I said that the people who lived in Judah, in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, when they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and carried off to Babylonia and ultimately conquered then by the Persians under Cyrus, that they went there and some of the people that went there were famous Jews to us. They're famous because they play a prominent role in the Old Testament scriptures. Daniel, for example was one of those who was carried off into exile into Babylonia. Uh, three others that you're probably familiar with are the Hebrew youths Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you all know that. They were all from this time period. They were carried off into captivity. And if you know the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know that they rose through the ranks of Babylonian and Persian society and became quite influential themselves, in large measure because God gave them the ability to interpret dreams. This was particularly the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was troubled by this recurring dream that he had, and he went to his magi, his magicians, and he appealed to them. He said, you've got to tell me. You're the experts on this sort of thing. What is my dream all about? And they said, well, tell us your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I shouldn't need to tell you my dream. If you're really magi, wise men, influential, you tell me what my dream was and you tell me what it means. And he said, and if you can't do that, off with your head because it means you're not legitimate. Well, the Magi tried to buy time as you read through the story. They're kind of like, what are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to do. The king's out of his mind. But we're <laughs> They did their best. But in the end, they could not do it. And they said, look, your majesty, no one on earth can interpret the dream unless you tell us. And he said, that means you're not legitimate. And he said, all of you will die. And then somebody says, well, there is one guy. There's that guy, that, that Hebrew guy, Dan, Daniel. And so they call Daniel in, and Daniel, of course, is able to not only interpret the dream, he's able to recount for the king 
the dream. And the king, of course, is thrilled with Daniel. Now, you know that Daniel ultimately fell out of favor, not with Nebuchadnezzar so much. He was tricked. Uh, but, you know, there's a great deal of jealousy when that sort of thing takes place. All of a sudden, Daniel rises through the ranks, and he's got the king's ear. And what about those who did have the king's ear? Well, they're upset about this. And so we're told that the satraps and, and the influential people at court conspired to have David put to death. And you know the story. If you don't know the story, go back and read it in the book of Daniel for yourself. You know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. What is interesting, however, is that we're told that the satraps and the influential people at court conspired to have Daniel put to death, but the Magi did not. Why? Because Daniel appealed to the king after he told him the dream and interpreted the dream not to have the Magi put to death. And at that point, the Magi sort of allied themselves with Daniel. So when you hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the others being put to death, you hear about the satraps and the advisors and so forth, but the Magi are absent from the list. It is probably these men. Now, that was about 1500 BC. Down through the ages, these men must have gone to Daniel and they must have said, What in the world? Where did you get this insight? How could you do what none of us were ever capable of doing? And you know exactly what Daniel did. Daniel told them about his God. And I am almost certain that it is the case that some of these magi passed on that faith that had been bestowed on them by Daniel down through the ages. In other words, for about 500 years or so, they kept the flame of the true God alive. And Daniel had promised them that the time would come when a Messiah, a true king, would rise, whose kingdom and whose world would be without end. And for 500 years, though nobody in Jerusalem was waiting for the Messiah, here, out here in this land of polytheism and paganism, there were a few who were keeping the flame alive. They were God-fearers, waiting, anticipating. And all of a the sudden, they who studied the stars, the heavenly bodies, saw something rise something that was an indicator that something was great, a portent of some significant event had just occurred, and they were looking forward to that, and they said, this must be the one of whom Daniel told us all those centuries before. And they rose, and at great personal cost and risk, they traveled all the way from Persia, it would have been a very dangerous and long journey, and they made their way to Jerusalem to find this one who was born, the new king of the Jews. Do you see how God works? I mean, just pause there before we even go on to talk about anything else. How extraordinary that is. One might think, one might think that the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the deportation of the people would have been the greatest tragedy imaginable. But God ultimately uses it as the means by which he will take the message of the one true God and the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, to a people who had never heard of it. 
And those people will eventually come back and offer their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when Joseph hears of how Herod is going to destroy the Christ child, the Savior, the Messiah, the only hope of the world, he tells Joseph, a poor man, a carpenter, that he's got to go to Egypt about 70 to 100 miles to the south, and he's got to find a place to stay there. For how long? We don't know. Joseph doesn't know. He's just supposed to go. How is Joseph going to provide for his wife and his child? How in the world is he going to be able to find a place to live? He has nothing. Oh, but he does. He has gold. Gold that has been brought to him by what? The Magi who heard the message of the coming Messiah 500 years before because Daniel and his friends had been deported. That's how God works. That's Romans 8.28, isn't it? God working all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That is one of the reasons why you, even in the midst of great difficulty and disaster, need never lose hope. Because God preserved his salvation. He preserved the Savior, the Messiah, and he did it perhaps by means of these illustrious visitors who came from this pagan land. It's a remarkable and fascinating story. Now, Matthew's real point here, of course, and incidentally, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the four Gospels, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the most Jewish of all the Gospels. But what is interesting is that Matthew is emphasizing the fact that it's not just that people came to Christ, the shepherds and so forth. The story of the Magi is told because it is a reminder to us that the Gentiles came to Christ. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He was part of the Davidic line. He was the long-promised, long-anticipated Davidic Messiah. And yet... He was not just the Savior of the Jews. He was the Savior of the world, of all people. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to John chapter 1 for just a moment. The very opening section of John chapter 1. Beginning at verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. It was that light that the Magi were seeking. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. It's really interesting, isn't it? When Herod heard, when the, when the Magi arrived, and these were influential, powerful people, he was troubled, especially when he heard there was a new king of the Jews. He was very troubled in his spirit. He was the king of the Jews as far as he knew. This was a pretender to his throne. This was a threat to him. And it's interesting, he had to go and ask the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the experts, where is the Messiah going to be born? He didn't know. 
He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He wasn't anticipating the Messiah. And even they had to go back and search the scriptures and say, oh, it's going to be in Bethlehem. Nobody in Judea, nobody in Jerusalem was looking for the Messiah. And here were these pagans who'd kept the flame alive for 500 years who were coming from afar. He came to that which was his own, but his own what? Received him not, but... John goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is, and you've heard me say this before, but it's so vitally important that we understand, it is grace, not place, that makes a person a child of the king. And that was true for these magi. In Acts chapter 13, we're told that Paul and Barnabas preached in Pisidian Antioch, and they preached first and foremost to the Jews, and we're told that the Jews rejected it, and Paul said, since you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And they did turn to the Gentiles, and we're told the Gentiles rejoiced that the gospel had come to them, and the word of the Lord spread throughout the entire region. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are here today because God did not confine the message of salvation only to the Jews, but to Gentiles like those wise men. It teaches us that wise men still seek Christ. They still seek Him. Now, they came, as you know, bearing gifts. And I'm going to go through this briefly because I've only got 10 minutes. Well, depending upon who's counting. And I'm counting, so that's where we are. They came, and Justin will talk a little bit about this. They came bearing gifts. Not only were they significant in the fact that they were Gentiles seeking out the Messiah, the gifts that they brought were also significant. Now, whether or not they recognized this, we do not know. We don't know if they understood the significance of the gifts that they were bringing. But there's no doubt as you look back through biblical history that each one of these gifts was vitally important. The first was, of course, gold. Gold is the gift of kings. Um, there is a small village, Mycia in Greece, where there was excavation being done in the early part of the 20th century, and they discovered a magnificent golden mask. Uh, it became known as the Mask of Agamemnon. Now, you know Agamemnon was um, not a real king, but when the archaeologist saw that mask and he saw the face, he said, I'm looking on the face of Agamemnon. And it is one of the greatest treasures of the Greek state to this day. I have seen it. You can see it in the Archaeological Museum in Athens. Those of you who went with me on the journeys of St. Paul, you have gazed like he had on the face of Agamemnon. But many people believed. He called it the, the, the fat mask of Agamemnon because it was a treasure trove of gold and Agamemnon was a king because this was the gift of kings. It's also true, some years ago, Kristen and I went to Egypt and we visited the great archaeological museum there in Cairo. And you've probably seen some of the treasures of King Tut, Tutankhamun, this young teenage king whose tomb was discovered by Howard Carter in 1927 up in the Valley of the Kings. And its most important piece is the face mask, which is made of solid gold. When the Magi came and they offered 
to this child who had been born in a stable. Justin will point out, and he's absolutely correct, when the Magi arrived in Bethlehem, or in Jerusalem actually, they came to the palace of Herod looking for the king. Why? Because that's where kings are found. And when they were told he's not born here, they, they had to go and, and find him in Bethlehem. He wasn't in the stable by this point, but he was by no means living in a palace. Bethlehem was just a village of about a thousand people, small. He was in a very humble dwelling, this new king. And yet they recognized that he was the king, and they opened and they gave him the gold, a gift befitting a king. It teaches us that Jesus Christ is the king. And you need to know something about kings in the ancient world. They were not constitutional monarchs like Prince, like King Charles or Queen Marguerite of Denmark who just abdicated the throne. No, they were absolute rulers. When they came and they bowed down and opened their gifts of gold, they were acknowledging Jesus Christ to be not just a king, but their king. They brought another gift, and that other gift was incense. Justin will also deal with this a little bit as well. That is the gift of a priest. It is what a priest offers in the temple confines in Jerusalem in the first century. There was an altar of incense that represented the sweet-smelling prayers of the people wafting up before God. Incense was used extensively in worship in the first century in a Jewish context, in, in most religions, but particularly in Jerusalem and in Judea. It was often used as part of the grain offering. Incidentally, never part of the sin offering, which was meat and wine, but always part of the grain offering. That is to say, an offering of thanksgiving. When it was burned on the altar, it was mixed with incense to make it sweet-smelling before the Lord. When the Magi offered gold, they offered a gift to a king. When they offered incense, they were offering the gift to a priest. That Jesus was recognized as a king. He was recognized as a priest. Now, what's interesting, in the ancient world, those two offices were always separate. A king could never be a priest, and a priest could never become a king. They were absolutely separate. And yet, in this unique person, they were acknowledging him to be a king and a priest. That is to say, one who makes a sacrifice, one who intercedes on our behalf before the God of the universe. They offered incense. We still use incense in some services today. In fact, some of the clergy were trying to force me to use incense on Christmas Eve. And uh, I said, I'm not sure how that will go down. Um, we're going to have to do some education on that. But I will tell you that incense has long been a part of the Christian tradition. If you read the book of Revelation, we're told that incense is going to be used extensively in Scripture. So if you've got asthma, you'll be healed of that when you get to heaven, I'm sure. And they offered a third gift. Gold, frankincense, and they offered myrrh. What is myrrh? Myrrh is the gift for a victim. Myrrh was a very precious thing in the ancient world. If you go to Revelation, the book of Revelation, you'll find that one of the cities to which John addressed his letter, one of the seven cities, one of them was Smyrna. And Smyrna means myrrh. Smyrna, myrrh. It was a city that was known for mining 
and then turning this into a product that could be sold. And it was very valuable in the ancient world. The church in Smyrna had become uh, poor, but the city was rich. That's one of the reasons why John says, you are poor, but yet you are rich. It's because they were a wealthy people as a result of this myrrh that was offered. It was what was used in the burial process. In fact, if you go to John's gospel, the end of John's gospel, we're told that when Jesus was crucified and his body was taken down from the cross, it was taken and prepared for burial, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who we encounter earlier in the gospel of John, who came to him by night, they prepared the body for burial, and they used 75 pounds worth of ointment and myrrh. Now, Justin does an excellent job in the sermon of pointing out the fact that this would have been a somewhat jarring gift, particularly for Mary. When they came with their gifts and they offered the gold, that's wonderful, and the frankincense, that's lovely. But myrrh, he says, that's like presenting a funeral urn to a mother. This is for your child. But it is a reminder to us that the shadow of the cross loomed over every aspect of Jesus' life. You know, the real significance of Bethlehem, my friends, is not that a baby was born, but that this baby was born, and this baby was born for the express purpose of dying. You do understand that we celebrate the incarnation, but you do know that if Jesus Christ had become incarnate, if God had become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, but he had never died upon the cross, you and I would never be any better off than if he'd never come in the first place. We'd be able to say at one point in history, yes, God came and walked among us, and that's lovely. God spent some time with us, but it would be like a rich man who's experienced everything in life. He's had every adventure possible. The only thing he's never experienced is poverty, and he wants to experience that. And so for three years... He renounces all of his wealth, locks up his houses, and he comes down and he lives among the poor on the other side of the track for three years, experiencing the hunger and the deprivation that they experience. But then at the end of those three years, says, okay, been there, done that, and he goes back up the hill, burns his clothes, puts on his new raiments, opens his house back up, and resumes his old life. The people who lived down in the village, their life would be no different. They'd be able to say, oh, yes, at one point that man up there on the hill came down and he walked among us, but it made no difference whatsoever. If Christ had been born, walked among us, but never died for our salvation and rose for our justification, ladies and gentlemen, we'd be no better off than if he'd never come in the first place. But he did. He was born for the express purpose of dying that you and I might not die but live forever. And that's what that gift represents. So here's the question to close with on this Feast of the Epiphany. Are you wise enough to seek Jesus Christ as they did? Have you come to realize that the light is shining in the darkness? And are you willing to come and bow down before him as those magi did? Are you willing to offer him your treasures? Are you willing to offer him your gold? Because everything you have comes from him. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own 
have we given thee? Are you willing to give him your earthly treasure to offer it to him? Are you holding it back, hoarding it? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's not the other way around, brothers and sisters. You know what your treasure is because that's where your heart is. You're willing to offer him your gold for his kingdom, for his glory, the gift of a king? Are you willing to offer him your incense? That is to say, your praise, your thanksgiving, your honor. You're willing to come to church on a regular basis and offer that up to him as a fragrant offering before him. Are you willing to offer your myrrh, your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh? What is your myrrh? It is your own death, your own death to self. You're willing to say, I set aside my joy, my hope, my dreams, and I will die to self that I might live for him. That is what the Magi offered. That's why they were wise. And that's why we remember them today. God grant that we might be as wise as they and give to him our gold, our frankincense, our everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these visitors who came a great distance, who were willing to risk everything in order to find him who was the king Lord, we don't even have to go as far as they did. We don't have to seek earnestly. Jesus Christ is nearer than our next breath. But we don't offer him our gold. We don't offer him our frankincense. We don't offer him our myrrh, our very lives. Grant us the grace to be wise like these men were, to remember them and to follow their example, that we may know him who is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and Savior of the world. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.